0: Okay, we could go just clear out crazy and start a minute early. So, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, I got to let you out. Well, let's begin with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the day, for going with us throughout the day, keeping us safe, watching over us. You are... Lord, you are perfect in every way, and we thank you that you give us everything we need for life and for godliness. Bless our time here together tonight, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Two weeks ago, I listened four or five minutes today to the tail end of um, two weeks ago's lesson to remember what what I was talking to you about. Um, <clears throat> and we are ready for, we, we looked at Lutheranism. Maybe f- to back up, we're talking about what do other churches believe, working our way, I know you think we'll never get there, but eventually to um, what are called Christian cults. And we're not talking about Eastern religions, and we did cover some of the ancient, you know, Buddhism, Hindu, and all that stuff. But um, Christian cults are those that claim to be Christian but are um, either deny fundamental Christian doctrines or whatever. So we will eventually get there. But we're coming through now, as far as different teachings and doctrines, the period of the Protestant Reformation, which produced, um, in addition to Catholicism, it produced a number of streams of theology, and we mentioned, uh, I think we've looked at what's called Lutheranism, which um, mainly was a couple of main points, justification by faith, not by works, pilgrimages, you know, all the in uh, Luther's day the the Roman Catholic Church required. Um, second, there was what's called reformed and john calvin's name is associated with that Um, that was a different stream of thinking and we talked about it um, two weeks ago reformed being tulip we'll look at that a little bit later again today we have to repeat some while we look at a third or fourth different Stream of theology of thinking beliefs. Then there were called the Anabaptists, which were the word just means rebaptizers. They did they were strongly opposed to infant baptism, and believed only in adult baptism. It had to be by immersion. It gave rise um, to the well the Anabaptist heirs descendants, primarily the Hutterites or Hutterites, however you pronounce it, the Amish and the different strains of Amishism, Mennonites, and then also the more I guess you'd use the word, more radical, independent uh, Baptist churches that um, are many, many of them here in the United States. The Baptists originated kind of alongside the Puritans in England after the Reformation in the 1600s and very early 1600s. Along with Puritans, there were also Baptists that came to America. And Baptist denominations really developed here. Now they really not only of course did they believe in justification by faith, they believed in adult baptism, very very opposed to infant baptism, and also adult baptism must be my by, by immersion, but also they had very strong positions on what we would call today separation from church and state the the original Baptists that came here to America, fleeing persecution primarily on the continent and in England, came here in a revolt against the civil state dictating religion. Now, we can't even get there, so I'm not going to spend hardly any time on it. We don't, we're so used to, um, separation of church and state. We think the whole world knows all about it and everybody believes in it and everybody really likes it. We're it, just about, on true freedom of religion. The vast majority of churches were, or of um, countries, Western, European, vast majority. Civil and church were wed. Even to this day, King Charles in England is called, it's a title about 60 words long, Defender of the Faith. Um, He is the head of the Church of England. And that's the tithe or, or, or taxes in England pay for church property, church maintenance, pastors, salaries, and a whole hierarchy clear up to the Archbishop of Canterbury, all of it is taxpayer funded. Now, Americans just you know run the streets with their eyes bugged out over anything like that. But that is the norm and was especially the norm back in the Reformation days if the king converted to Protestantism the whole place immediately became at least officially Protestant and then all you have to do is have that king drop over dead and maybe he doesn't have any heirs and so his Catholic brother takes over and now they're Catholics and then he drops dead and his Protestant wife or whatever Becomes the queen, now they're Protestants. That was just accepted. We can't even grasp it. One of the tenets of Baptist beliefs and one of the points that they camped on was they don't want the state and the church to have anything to do with each other. They don't want the state telling the church what to do, and they don't believe the church ought to be telling the state what to do. Okay? Now, <clears throat> to this day then, I think I mentioned in, last week, there are 340 million people in the United States, and there are about 335 million Baptist denominations, okay? Um, because if you don't like it, you go start another Baptist denomination. And pretty soon, you know, there's second Baptist, third Baptist, there's new hope, there's new faith, there's new, you know. And because they, they have a going clear back to the Anabaptists, they were radicals. Don't tell me what to do. My conscience is my own. Not, it's not all bad, but it does produce a repetition of little, little doctrinal differences. We're done with it. We're not messing with you anymore. We're going to go start a real church that believes a real truth. Um, so, <clears throat> but at any rate, The the Baptist uh, denominations then, even today, you will find in cases where maybe there's an issue of prayer in school or whatever, where the church as a moral force and a moral voice seeks to exercise its voice to the state, to the civil government. You will find some Baptists who will fight like Comanches not to mess with it. We don't want prayer in schools. Now, their argument is because you leave us alone, we'll leave you alone. There's some pro and con to that. They also reason, now, you didn't have this when our country was founded, but now, if you press to have local pastors pray at the city council, which is all over the country, you're going to have some Wiccans show up. You'll have some Satanists show up. That's part of the price we pay for being in a pluralistic society. So sometimes we get more than we ask for. When we want, we want to get, you know, we want to get prayer back into school. Well, I do too. But formally, then it opens it up to every single kind of Tom, Dick, and Harry crazy religion. And we don't want that. So, um, in that sense, the Baptists have a point, I think. At any rate, now we move to another. So we've got Lutheranism, Reformed, and Reformed includes, historically, uh, Presbyterians. Ever heard of the Dutch Reformed? Christian Reformed? Churches like that? Um, They... They are pretty much of state. They've splintered some also. But then you have the Anabaptists. Now we move to what would really be a third or a fourth main or major stream within Protestantism. That would be called either Arminianism or Wesleyan Arminianism. Now, every, I, I read in an article the other day, which whoever printed this should have known better, but they were talking about the Armenians. Armenianism has nothing to do with the Armenians who are somewhere in Turkey or wherever, and they're a people group, okay? We're, we're, we're not talking about Armenians. We're talking about Armenians, I. A R M I N. That comes from James Arminius. Okay? James Arminius was <clears throat> from the Netherlands. He studied in Geneva, Switzerland, under a guy by the name of Theodore Beza. B E Z A. Beza was John Calvin's. Son-in-law. In In seminary, our theology professors used to say it's generally considered that Batesa out-Calvin to Calvin. That Batesa took Calvinism a little bit further than maybe Calvin even would have. And the primary area where he carried it probably further than John Calvin, gets back to the tulip that we talked about two weeks ago. And I'll save that because I have to go over it again to compare Arminianism to tulip, which is Calvinism, because Arminianism sprang up as an objection to tulip okay now last thing I'll say about Arminianism before I explain what it is it isn't anything new Arminianism is not new any more than justification by faith was a brand new doctrine it wasn't a brand new doctrine it had been neglected discarded and um, demeaned luther didn't invent justification by faith he merely dusted it off in the bible and reasserted it after it had been virtually obliterated in the church arminianism is also let's put it this way I don't want if well my professors in seminary are no longer with us, so they can't you know be disappointed in, in me. Um, I'm an Armenian by the way, I think most people would know that. I have more in common now, don't run out of here um, you know like the sanhedrin, you know, when Stephen. Said Jesus was the Lord, they put their fingers in their ears and he ran out. I don't want you doing that. Theologically, in certain areas, don't forget I said that. Theologically in certain areas, I have more in common with a Catholic than I do with an old line Presbyterian or a more new um, freer Baptist. There's 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 doctrines that um, Catholicism still maintains that a lot of Protestants have thrown out that they shouldn't have thrown out. I'm not talking about penance and all that stuff, but I'll get to it in a second here. <clears throat> Arminius was studied in Switzerland, Geneva, where uh, Calvin resided and where Calvinism as a doctrine was born. He studied under Beza and then he went to the University of Leiden in the Netherlands and was a professor there. In the late, late 1500's and the very early 1600's Arminius died in 1610 a conflict arose, and you might sit here thinking, okay, how long is this going to go? It's 16 after, we, if I can endure it 44 more minutes, we're out of here. Um, and I do apologize for maybe getting in the weeds, but sometimes you can't, you, you can't understand other doctrines unless you understand a bunch of doctrines, okay? <clears throat> how many of you, and this? everyone here will get a gold star if you can remember this, What's a sublapsarian? Is there anybody here that can tell me what a sublapsarian is? Anybody here who can tell me what a supra, not super, supra-lapsarian is? Does it have to do with the Holy Spirit? Where did that come from? Yes, what did you say? That's another doctrine. No, that's another doctrine. But since you failed this one, you'll need to wait in the hallway till. uh, um. Sublapsarian, supralapsarian are two different views of predestination. Predestination meaning God determined everybody's salvation. You know, we don't know, no one really knows who the elect are, but they're called the elect, and those who are not elect are damned. There's not a thing you can do about it. There's not anything you can do about it if you're one of the elect. You will be saved. It will be all of God. It's another doctrine called monergism. Monergism is God saves you, you have no part in it. You don't cooperate, you can't cooperate. He's got to do it. Um, people that are going to go to heaven agree with me and are synergism or synergists that's divine human cooperation monergism is what Calvin believed and he began to teach that you are predestined either to be saved or to be lost and there's nothing you have to say or do about it either way okay Now, the argument arose, and it's kind of too bad, but they argued about what I consider a completely phantom notion in the first place, and that is predestination. There isn't such a thing as, hear me, predestining people to be saved or go to hell. There's a lot of other things that are predestined. It's through Jesus and Jesus alone. It's by faith. It's by faith alone, so forth. Those things are predestined. Or as I said a couple weeks ago on a Sunday, the plan of salvation is predestined, period. Those who participate in it are not predestined. That's up to my free will, okay? But the arguing of, over predestination settled down onto when did predestinate, when did the decrees of who goes to heaven, who goes to hell occur? Some say <coughs> supra lapsarian, lapse is the fall. That the decrees of who's going to heaven and who's going to hell, and there's nothing you can do about it, occurred prior to the fall. Those are supra lapsarians, okay? Then there was a group called sublapsarians. The sublapsarians were those who believed that Adam's sin, Adam and Eve's sin, was free choice, free will. At that point, humankind could operate freely and the will was free. But the moment they sinned and fell and came into the bondage of sin, from that point on, after the fall, predestination kicked in and God determined everybody subsequent to Adam and Eve, who would be saved, who would be damned. Okay? So they were fighting over a myth (laughs) that there is predestination to heaven or to hell. There isn't. God calls us all. It's ridiculous. I brought this up a long time ago. The only time that ever was heard of was St. Augustine brought it up in the 400s. And the church itself, the Catholic church, though they to this day greatly um, venerate St. Augustine, the church holding a council, should we buy this new doctrine that Augustine has come up with or not, they shot down predestination. They said, we're not buying it. So it kind of died. There were a few lingering people, but it kind of died, and it was dead for 1,100 years until, to, to a little degree, Luther, to a much bigger degree, Calvin revived it and brought it back and doubled down on it. Okay, so, Arminius is teaching in Leiden. This Fuhrer grew up because nobody was dead sure what Calvin, his, his writings are somewhat iffy on both sides, but his son-in-law, Beza, was a supra-lapsarian. It happened before the fall. Now, this is extra credit. What, aside from there being no such thing as predestination of who's going to heaven and who's going to hell, let me ask you this question. What's one of the major obvious flaws of supra Lapsarianism. Anybody? It makes God responsible for sin. It makes God predestining that Adam and Eve was sin. It's absurd. Now, sublapsarian is no better because it just skips Adam and Eve and then predestines sin from on. But nevertheless, the monarch of the Netherlands called a big synod, and it was in 1608, 1609, somewhere in there, if I remember right. There'd been argument over this, and James Arminius, this leading theologian in the Netherlands, (coughs) was basically chosen to defend the predestination doctrine, and I can't remember exactly, but it was a year, two years, but he spent a long time studying Scripture, so forth. And Arminius came out and said, "I don't believe it." He said, "It's not in the Scripture, and I don't believe it, and we ought to quit teaching it." Well, this was not remember. This was not a well live and let live and and free conscience, and just do what you want. Um, the king, in the Netherlands, called a synod. Big meeting of all the theologians, all the pastors, all the ministers, and so forth. And they had this, is called. it was in a place called Dort. <laughs> you know, if you're thinking about a name for kids or whatever, it was in Dort. The synod of Dort. So, they came together... And Arminius made his presentation. The king, the king was a strong supralapsarian, okay? And he appointed the commission. He appointed, I think the commission consisted of 42 or 43 people, three of whom were Arminians, 40 were Calvinists, okay? So you got the hint of where he was hoping things would go. After everybody presented their whole, their sides, nobody agreed with Arminius. They threw every Arminian, everybody that believed in free will and believed that we can cooperate with God, they threw him out, exiled him, they expelled from the Netherlands every minister who happened to agree with him, um, banished them, closed all the churches of any people that believed that you have a free will. And, but, they decided that uh, the official doctrine would not be superlapsarianism, but sublapsarianism. Okay, so it was a minor victory for the people that were against God predestining prior to Adam and Eve, in favor of those who said it was after Adam and Eve. Okay, now, but Arminius, um, now Arminius died just a year or so after that. I, was, I think it was 2008 or 9, or 168 or 9, that he had, that they had this synod, and uh, he died in 1610. Now, the result of that was what was called the canons. The canons, which is not firing cannons; It's standard. It's the same word we use for Scripture. You know, what the canon Um, the canons of Dort, okay? And they spelled out sublabsarianism, not supra. Now, Arminius then basically took this position, and here's where I'll remind you of the tulip. Um, Tulip is total depravity. Rendering you completely unable to cooperate with God at all. You and I are so shackled we can't respond to God. The you is therefore, because we can't do a thing to help save ourselves. We can't even respond to God. We can't even think about God. You is unconditional election or predestination. God's got to pick you. You can't, because you can't cooperate. So just to be nice, he saves eight or ten out of a hundred, just to show his mercy. And the 90 or 90, you know, whatever, I'm being a little bit, but not too far sarcastic. The 90 that don't get chosen, and instead get sent to hell, shut up about it. You're a sinner, you deserve it anyway. Just to show his mercy and how just, he's having a good day. So he says, I'm going to let 10 of you go to heaven. Rest of you are going to hell. Be quiet about it that's predestined unconditional election L is limited atonement which I said last week or whenever two weeks is, is to me the most God slandering doctrine of that tulip thing that there is L is limited atonement God died for the 8 or 10 out of 100 who he predestined to be saved he didn't even die for the rest of us poor slobs who are in the 90 that didn't get chosen What? Yeah, God still loved the good. Yeah, yeah. And it's amazing um, what Calvinists do to Scripture. Virtually, I don't know if there's a page where there isn't something that talks about all. Christ died for all. You know, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The word all is everywhere. The Calvinists, with no authority whatsoever, none, just because they know it all, declare all just means the elect. All means the eight to ten that were predetermined. Doesn't mean the rest. They don't need any authority because they just say it. So all doesn't even mean what all means. I am, I'm reminded of this. Um... I read, I suppose this is a true thing, back in the 1800s out here in the west someplace was a sign in front of a blacksmith shop who was quite into ornate stuff, not just horseshoes and stuff. And his sign showed, you know, painted on this board, showed some of the things he made, some of the turn, you know, turning and whatever he made. It says all sorts of fancy twisting and turning done here. A Methodist preacher said we ought to take that and put it in front of the Baptist churches. (laughs) That's what they do with then were doing with Scripture. Like all just means the elect. What? We don't have that kind of freedom with Scripture. Plus, that's slanderous against God's mercy and kindness and that Jesus shed his blood for the whole world. L is limited atonement. Um, I is irresistible grace of tulip. means you will be saved. There's no such thing as not, there's no such thing as resisting God's call. Because God, here's what God does. He doesn't aid your will in responding to Him. He completely alters it. In fact, He, in some magic, and they call, they use, Calvin used the word secret influence. God takes your will away from you that is contrary to Him. And He replaces it with a will that He has predetermined in you would come to Him. And so then He makes that will make you respond to him and come to him and he saves you you don't really you may you think you're responding but you're not it's him okay that's irresistible grace you will be saved and then last um, perseverance of the saints which means the p is perseverance you will you will um make it heaven you can't lose your salvation you can't walk away from your faith um you are, you are infallibly going to end up in heaven. I don't care what you do. Period. You will go to heaven. Okay? Now, Arminius' point was, and we, don't, we can't come up with a nice word like tulip. So, we just can't help it. But anyway, Arminius' point when it came to um total depravity that we are completely the moral image of God in our heart is is destroyed okay Arminius's point was true however there is such a thing as prevenient grace prevenient grace literally means the grace that goes before or the grace that proceeds uh, in front of us drawing us to God. The purpose of prevenient grace is to undo the bondage of the will from sin only in a certain degree enough that I can recognize God I can hear his voice I can sense my need I God plants a hunger in my heart and he draws me and he calls me and he convicts me of sin and he gives me a sense of hope. He enables my will, which has been chained. He enables my will to respond to him. Okay? Now, today, oh, I can't get too much in the weeds. Um, you, well, I'd say this. I'll save that. Um, anyway, those those five points: to total depravity, yes, but prevenient grace. Pre- prevenient grace uh, releases the bondage of sin on our will and our reason and our emotions, our affections enough that I can respond to God, and it does so to the point that I am therefore accountable. If I don't, God has given me enough light, enabled my will enough, draws me and calls me that if I say no, then he is just in finally giving me my way and saying, you're banished from heaven. It's, it's on me because he's given me so much ability to respond to him. Unconditional election, of course, is universal um, Call. Still in this tulip thing. Universal, everybody gets called. Jesus, John said, John 1, He is the light that lights every man coming into the world. Titus 2, 11, 13, 14. The grace of God has appeared to all men. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts We should live righteously and godly in this present world, wicked as it is, okay? The idea then everywhere in Scripture that is whosoever, that whosoever believes shall not perish but have everlasting life, okay? So um, there's no narrow election. Everyone's called. Then of course the L for limited atonement. It's an unlimited atonement. Jesus died. John, first John again says that Christ died, he said, for the sins of the whole world. That not just the elect, everybody. Okay? Um, <clears throat> then irresistible grace is a myth. I can resist God's grace. He calls Isaiah, pleaded with the people of Israel. God spoke through him saying this. All day long, he said, I've held out my hands pleading to a rebellious nation. Ezekiel, pleading, God pleading with Israel. He said to Israel, he said, I have no pleasure that the wicked die. Now that goes back to predestination. There's no such thing as that. I don't have any pleasure that the wicked die, and surely I'm not going to predetermine some to go to hell. I have no pleasure that the wicked die, but rather that he turn and live. And then he asked this great question. He said, O oh Israel, why will you die? It clearly is appealing to people who are making a choice that God is against, and He's pleading with them, "Don't make that choice." But it assumes the power to make the choice, so grace is resistible. Yeah. Stephen uh, said that when Stephen was about to be stoned, you know, he said, "People, you always resist the Holy Spirit." Exactly. Yeah. Um, everywhere you have God portrayed as dealing with free moral agents who he will not trample over and compel our will God wants voluntary love and voluntary obedience and voluntary faith if you have to you know if you have to chain your kids up and torture them to like you um, you got problems Um, How many of us would, you know, enjoy it if our spouse was compelled to like us? Uh, That's not too good, (laughs) okay? Um, God, God's grace is the most, what, brilliant and prominent when we cooperate and we come to love God voluntarily and obey Him, walk with Him. So, Arminius then had an issue with all five points of hyper Calvinism. Um, he he died. His followers, or the people that thought that way, um, agreed with that doctrine. Many of them left um, the Netherlands. Much of the the um, European continent, especially on the western coast of Europe, ended up emigrating at that particular time to England for a little more religious freedom. Okay? So, Arminianism, the doctrine of free will, um, ended up migrating to England. Now, it was in England where it was, there was, I think you could say, within the Church of England, there was a pretty wide um, allowance for, not for Catholicism, but for Protestantism. So there were some Calvinist leanings. There were some Arminian leanings. This was in the mid-1600s. By the uh, early 1700s, Arminianism had a pretty good foothold in England. And it's in the 1700s that John and Charles Wesley were part of the uh, Church of England who espoused Arminianism rather than Calvinism. Okay? Let's see here. Um... There's one little thing I got to mention. I, I, yeah, I think I can get this. That we have to, I forgot to mention about Calvinism. Not only predestination and all that, the tulip, but Calvinism denied, and still does to this day, denies that um, we can be free from the practice of sinning and. We should aim for it, but you're never going to get there. And especially, there is no, in this life, remedy, cure, or whatever else, for the inherited bent to sinning that we're all born with. Sinful nature. Nothing nothing is done for the sinful nature in this life. Only that God helps us to kind of... Um, you know, put, hold your hat down over, over the chimney and try to keep the smoke from getting out. And you just wrestle against it, and you will fall to it often, but you wait for death. Death frees you. The big problem here is where Calvin, uh, if you want to use this term, Because it's not something you can measure. But where is sin located? Where did Jesus say sin comes from? Where did he say from such and such comes murder, fornication, adultery, lying, hatred? Where did he say? The heart. Not humanity, not my body, not my flesh. The heart. Okay, now, if you locate sin in the fleshly body with its desires and appetites and drives, add sin in, um, because it's in those drives, and in all of that, I can see why you would be forced to believe you're never going to get rid of the inclination to sin, the the proneness to sin until you die I've got to lay aside this um, corrupted body before I can be free from sin so that's why um, Calvin Calvinism and Calvin taught that we're to aim for one thing I have to say about Calvin he was out Calvin by a lot of his followers Calvin taught that we should not be willfully sinning if we can at all help it. We'll never get there, but we should try hard, okay? And, of course, later we developed the idea that if you are such a horrible rat as a professing Christian, it either meant one of two things. Usually it was, well, you're never saved in the first place. You're not one of the elect, okay? Secondly, there are quite a few teach, and you might think, oh, "Wow, well, you know, you're making stuff up and, you know, Look, I I just can't give names, okay, or relations to me as far as relatives. Um, I've had private and public conversations with a lot of people who will look at you with their eyes wide open and a straight face that if Christians are so much a reproach to God by their lifestyle and their sinning, That there's nothing left for God to do but just kill them and take them to heaven. Now you might think, well, I'm telling you, I know what I'm talking about. That's crazy. You ever heard of a guy named, probably haven't. You're you're not harmed if you haven't. A guy named John R. Rice. Anybody ever heard of him? He had a magazine back in the 50s, in the 60s called the sword of the Lord. And John R. Rice, I've read it myself, said, when Jesus returns to bring his people home, out of the brothels, the bars, and he named all kinds of, you know, crummy places, will come the saints of God. And, I read it, He said, if I am standing out in the road, he said, looking up into heaven, shaking my fist in God's face and throwing rocks towards him, he will take me with him to heaven. See, I don't believe that. (laughs) Okay? Um, Now, that all comes, though, by denying that we can be Freed from not only the practice, but the pollution of the sinful nature. What do you do with? You can't, you're not, you, you can't get away from sin. So you have something. This gets in the weeds, and I won't spend much time there, but it is important. It's called imputed, imputed righteousness. Okay? Now, imputed righteousness. There is such a thing in the Bible as imputed righteous. The word imputed means to credit or to account or to reckon. It's to account. Imputation in the way Calvinism defines it is God imputes to each of us that have believed, that have trusted in Jesus, he imputes to us the obedience of Jesus as if it were my own. So I have the righteousness of Jesus, the obedience credit of Jesus, even though I am not actually righteous. Okay? Now, you may think, well, okay, what, what? that's huge. Because it means, basically, then whatever I may do as a believer in the way of disobeying God, sinning, turning back in, into old habits, or whatever, is not going to separate me from God. It, will, it may, they will say this, it may uh, disrupt your fellowship. Okay, I've, I've butted heads with Calvinists forever. We got along good in seminary. We had some hardcore Calvinists, and, and you know, being an Arminian, they would make fun of us, um, and it honestly wasn't hostile or hateful, but they would make funny, fun of us. There's an old hymn, there's a new name, it, there's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. Oh, yes, it's mine. Ever heard of that? they would say, you Wesleyans, you, you Armenians, sing, there's a new name written down a pencil. And it's mine, oh yes, it's mine. The point being that you do anything and God will erase your name. Um, anyway, <clears throat> so if you sin, God imputes to you the fact that Jesus didn't. Because you believe in Jesus, he credits to you obedience even though you didn't obey because Jesus did and you put your faith in Jesus so he transfers that to you. Okay? Now, there is a, there is a the word imputed is, shows up in Scripture. Abraham, God took him out and showed him the, light, the stars and he said, Abraham, that's how many descendants I'm going to give you and he was by then 80-some years old, um, had no heir whatsoever, and figured it, man, God had already promised him an heir. And he'd waited a good long time, and he's thinking, what in the world's going on here? And God took him out he said, he and showed him this, the sky at night. And he says, that's how many of your descendants will be. It says, Abraham believed God. And it was imputed to him as righteousness. Okay, what was imputed to him? What was credited or accounted to him as righteousness? The obedience of Jesus? No. Faith. The credit of righteousness was because he believed God. Wesley put it this way. God can no, the Father can no more confound me with Christ's, my obedience or lack thereof, with Christ's obedience than he could with Abraham or David. It's my faith that is, it's particular, it's personal, that he credits to me as righteousness, I trusted God. Now, so there's a difference. Arminians say imputed righteousness is God counts our faith and our obedience walking in the light with him as righteousness and he actually changes our heart and makes us righteous. The Calvinist definition of uh, imputing Christ's obedience to me um, it smacks a lot I think of what Roman Catholicism used to have way back before the Reformation, what was called the Treasury of Merit. The Treasury of Merit was the um, the superfluous bank account of merit, religious moral merit, uh, that the saints had built up that even Jesus had contributed to. And so if people here on earth came short and they needed the, the, the Pope himself or the church had the authority to dole out you know um, you know papal dollars um papal credit um to help us over the hump. Um, it seems to me a little bit like the treasury of merit that if I get out of line, God just credits Jesus obedience to me even if i didn't obey it basically basically it has god um, it, it's heavenly. Um, well it's it's almost um, what's the word I don't want to be too far off Um, well it's mythical he looks he looks at me who just disobeyed him credits me with obeying and treats me as I didn't as if I didn't disobey it doesn't make any sense Now, um, anyway, Arminius and subsequent Wesleyans put an emphasis on imparted righteousness. Yes, there's such a thing as imputed. If I'm walking in all the light that I have, especially as a new Christian, and I fail someplace, not knowing, maybe even being unaware of it, in the Old Testament you had an entire sacrificial system for sins of ignorance people didn't even know it it says when you find out about it then you go through this sacrificial ritual and you'll be forgiven of it okay but God didn't hold it against them in the sense of jeopardizing their soul okay neither with Christians does he with unknown failings shortcomings whatever else does he credit against us in a Punishment, punitive way, failures, shortcomings, falling short that we are unaware of. He imputes because of my motive to walk with him and the ignorance of that, I did, that I failed someplace. He imputes to me righteousness because of my faith that I'm maintaining and covers that. And of course, God's work is to finally get around to show me don't do that again. Don't make that same mistake. Wakes you up to it. Okay? Now, um, let's try to um, kind of, I don't know, well, I'll tell you what. I'm going to try to, I think we can make it here. I want to get off onto here. We won't finish tonight, but we'll get to a stopping point. Um, the Arminian movement in England. Now, I think this, and I don't know, I doubt there would be much disagreement with me, or what I'm going to say, by anybody, any, many Christians, regardless of denomination or whatever else. The Wesleyan revival through the uh, 1700s, in England, is probably next to the revival of the early church after the day of Pentecost, when the gospel spread throughout the whole Mediterranean basin and just kept going. Um, That revival, I think, um, would be number one. But the Wesleyan revival was a massive, massive impactful, significant revival movement. Um, Began in England. Quickly spread to places on the continent. I can't go into it. There are just hundreds of different groups that um, the Reformation kind of spawned. Um, There was called German Pietism, and there was all kinds of different religious movements. That broke out, um, but the Wesleyan right revival ended up, in a sense, not putting the other ones out of business, but um, eclipsing them. It spread. Spread. I believe it was God's timing. The English Empire, the British Empire. Anybody know the statement that? was made able to be made during those couple of centuries about the british empire anybody no history uh the sun never sets on the british empire okay there was no place on the globe um, virtually where where the empire wasn't god used the Wesleyan Revival, which was primarily English, to go around the world. And there's so much to say, I kind of, I, I, even today, thinking about it, I thought, I don't know how in the world I'm going to get all this. Um, England was a total mess in the early 1730s. Um, in the 1730s, there was, well, back up another 1710s and 20s. There was a poor parish um, pastor in the Church of England in a little place called Epworth. And his name was Samuel Wesley. Um, Samuel and Susanna. And they lived in this little parsonage, straw thatched roof next to the church. Um, and she had if i'm i think i'm correct here she had 19 children 13 lived past infancy okay i think a couple more died um but at any rate among them were john and charles wesley um John was older by about three. He was born in 1703, and Charles was born in 1707, okay? It's a very, very pious family, very strict religious. Um, I, I have a few times used Susanna Wesley. They, there's a little booklet on her and her rules for her kids. I used that once or twice, probably 25, 30 years ago, on a Mother's Day sermon, and was mercilessly, or, you know, mercifully not chased to my car by all the mothers. Because when you really, I, this is, I think, no, been more, more than that, because I was preaching wonderful parent sermons on, went before I had any kids, okay? So, boy, I could really lay it out as far as fathers and how to deal with kids and mothers, and I knew it. Then I had kids. But at any rate... Um, they were there was no set, no snacks between meals. Very little crying was allowed. After discipline or whatever else, you knock it off. Um, with all those kids, she reserved one hour with each child per week, alone. Now, here, you, one thing though, even though they weren't well to do, they had they had a couple of maids. So that makes a whole lot of difference. Okay, but anyway. And she spent one hour, she said, with them for their souls. talk to them about God, prayer, so forth. Um, and I mean, as they were barely learning how to talk, they had to do all the prayers that you had to do in the Church of England and so forth. Um, and out of that family um, came Earth, history changing two sons. Um, Charles Wesley wrote somewhere, the net, the number's kind of all over the map, it's some say in excess of 10,000 hymns or poems, and some say as low as 6,000. Um, but at any rate, they grew up in the Church of England, um, they went to, you know, private schools, they both went to um, They went to Oxford um, and they became, both of them became ministers, ordained ministers in the Anglican Church. Well, um, Charles came to America with James Oglethorpe who was the governor appointed by the king of the brand new state of Georgia. And so uh, Charles was Oglethorpe's personal secretary, okay? And so he came over here and he was going to try to also serve as a missionary to the Indians. John followed a bit later also to be chaplain to the new settlement there in Georgia and to minister to the Indians. Okay? And um, Charles can't remember when he went home. He was there a couple of years. I think John Wesley was there a year and a half or something like that. And John Wesley especially went home from Georgia, a dismal failure, both in everybody else's eyes and in his. Okay. Both Charles and John Wesley are ordained ministers in the Church of England, burying, marrying, giving communion, preaching, and so forth. And neither of them knew a thing about being born again. They had no concept of being born again. Okay? You didn't need to be born again. They were infant baptized. And so, and they did the prayers every day, and they did what you're supposed to do. So, yeah, what do you mean I'm not a Christian? And so Wesley, he went home. Wesley ended up, um, I might as well stay off the subject for the next three minutes and then we'll quit. Um, Wesley met some woman there, some young, well, I don't know how old she was, 20-something. And her dad was prominent in this new colony there um, in Georgia. Well, they ended up engaged, okay? Either engaged or going to get engaged, real close. Well, somebody else, in the some other guy, cut in, you know, and talked her into dumping Wesley because there's no future for him. He's a priest in the Anglican church. He's going to make $50 a year. I mean, he's hopeless. And this guy was pretty well to do and so forth. So, you know, she gets engaged to this other guy. Well, no, there was nothing bad about it. There's nothing immoral, nothing illegal. And she just, you know, she broke off the engagement and marries this other guy. Well, Wesley is the parry or the colony priest. So what does he do? He denies her communion publicly the very next Sunday after she broke it off because you had communion every Sunday. And you come forward and they, you know, would serve you and so forth. And so he publicly told her she was not allowed to take communion, okay, because she dumped him. Um, Normally, if you did that and it was public, it had to have been something immoral. I mean, it was assumed, boy, there he knows something she did, and it's got to be bad. Um, Well, her dad was prominent and wealthy, so he goes and gets the constable, and he swears out a warrant for Wesley's arrest for humiliating his daughter in front of the whole congregation by not giving her communion, okay? So, the Lord mysteriously moved Wesley about a day or two later to get a rowboat and go across the um, the Savannah, the Savannah, Georgia, is where they were at, um, and get a, get on a ship going back to England. <laughs> he works in mysterious ways, um, but on that ship, on the way back, there were a little band of Moravians. Okay, the Moravians is a little denomination. It's still around. There's some in America. There's some in North Dakota, in fact. Um, but the Moravians were very, very missionary-minded. Um, they were staunch salvation-by-faith people. So Wesley was, you know, he'd run across that a few times, but he didn't know anything about it personally. Well, they got in a horrible storm, and they thought they were gonna, the ship was going down. And these Moravians, um, the, the, the seamen, they were pretty worked up. Wesley and the other people were really worked up, scared. The Moravians just held a prayer meeting and sang songs and out of their little hymnal and praised God and were just calm. And Wesley wrote in his journal after viewing that and seeing what he didn't have in his own heart. He wrote this great line. He said, I went to America to save the natives. But he said, oh, who will save me? And he realized, I don't know what, I don't know what they have, but I need it. So when they got back to England safely, the leader of that group was a guy named Peter Bowler. And Wesley sat down with him and said what's the deal here basically tell me what you have that I don't have and he talked to me about being saved by faith not just the rituals of the church and so forth which we don't have problems with but that isn't how you get saved and he explained to Wesley uh, what it meant to be saved by faith. Wesley sort of didn't get it, but Bowler told him something that was kind of interesting. He said, preach faith until you have it. And so he said, I don't care if you don't have it. It's in the Bible. Read it. He had read it. He knew what faith meant, but he didn't really know what it meant personally. Yeah, he could explain faith. But he said, preach it until God opens your heart and, and you get it. Well, meanwhile, Charles comes home And Charles and he both get acquainted with these Moravians. And they went to a Bible study in a little street called Aldersgate. And Aldersgate Street, um, it says, he says on May the 8th, 1738, he went, he said, very reluctantly to a meeting on this little street, Aldersgate and heard the minister, or the Bible study leader probably better, reading the preface to the book of Romans commentary by Martin Luther on justification by faith. Romans 1.17, the just shall live by faith. And Wesley says this in his journal, as he expounded on this, he said, this famous phrase, he said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. And I felt that indeed I did trust in Jesus for the salvation, the forgiveness of my own sins, and felt that I was reconciled unto God. Now, here's what's fascinating and sad to me at the same time. And then, I got, then I'll let you out of here. <clears throat> when I went to, when we were in England, massive city. There are near Aldersgate, we couldn't go to the place where Aldersgate was. There was some road construction and we were anyway, we just didn't we didn't make it to the very house where he had gotten saved. But in this huge kind of mall thing And a busy street, I don't know how many lanes and buses and those double-deckers and all kinds of stuff. There was a broad, uh, a, a sign probably that, a good wide, three, four feet wide. And it was kind of a waved like a scroll, you know, unfurled and kind of whatever. And it was that very statement that Wesley wrote, I felt my heart strangely warmed. And I, I stood there. There were literally thousands of people on the sidewalks, on the street, horns honking, taxis, the buses, the, and a bunch of people lounging around fucking on cigarettes and with their back up against that thing with Wesley's words on it. I looked at that and I thought, man, how sad that is. Nobody, that this man under God turned a nation around. I don't have time to tell you of the, the wretchedness of England. Every third door in London was a gin shop. Women, it says, routinely sold their children's clothing for a drink of gin. It was King Mob, one, one historian um, that I have, his three volume history said, capitalized king mob ruled in all of England. They were fighting over who should have been the king and there was a a pretend king and things were
1: mayhem.
0: Here's what's, then I will shut up. This is what is fantastic history, I think. The rise against the monarchy was going, parliament was getting out of hand and again, rioting everywhere and 40 miles away, across the channel was France. They had a revolution where the people that started the revolution beheaded the monarchs and everybody else and then ended up getting beheaded themselves. 40 miles across the channel in England they had a revival. That's, That's God's hand over there and that revival went literally around the world and france has never been the same they killed religion in france to this day like notre dame they're trying to repair it It doesn't belong to catholic church it belongs to the government churches that you they don't even have their own property anymore but 40 miles away was a revival and we ended up in america being the primary beneficiaries of that. Um, and that is, that's the heritage of this particular local church, but are the denomination and about 150 or more denominations in America. And primarily, again, sadly, the Methodists. Now, I love the Methodists, but John Wesley would be, he, he He'd turn over his grave if he knew the rainbow flags flying in the Methodist church now, um, but anyway, we got to quit. So the kids are just about to get out. Um, so that's what we'll talk about next week: what is Wesleyan Arminianism and it, that stream of Protestantism, um, and then I then I'll go ahead as was suggested by somebody. Some, yeah, and. Then I'm going to go ahead and we'll go ahead and do the the Pentecostal slash charismatic movement because that's another important movement, Protestant movement in America, okay? Um, Then we'll look at the cults and stuff, okay? Father in heaven, we pray that you would go with us as we go, keep us safe, we ask and give us, I pray, a blessed season, this Christmas season. And may we, in, in the middle of all the activities, may we never lose sight of the, the precious gift of salvation through the shed blood of Jesus on the cross. It's in His name we pray. Amen.